It's been a few months since China opened up post the harshest and longest COVID lockdown. Against the backdrop of a stagnant global economy, expectations of the world's second biggest growth engine bouncing back were high. But this has not been the case, with the latest economic data indicating a slower-than-expected recovery for the superpower. So, what does this mean for an already faltering global economy? And what will the impact be on emerging markets like South Africa, who've pinned our hopes on China, the biggest market for our commodities? Welcome, I'm Jeremy Maggs. This is No Ordinary Wednesday, an in-depth look at what's driving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. In this episode, I'm joined by John Wynne Evans, Head of Strategy at Investec Wealth and Investment UK, along with Quentin Allison, Investec Head of Commodities and Trade in South Africa. We're going to take an in-depth look at China's economic prospects in the face of lower consumer demand, high interest rates and stubbornly high inflation globally. To both of you, a very warm welcome. So, John, let's go to you first. China's recovery has not met market expectations. In your opinion, then, what is holding back its growth? Uh, Thank you, Jeremy. I think if we'd been having this conversation in early April, the tone might have been a little bit different. First quarter GDP growth actually came in at 4.5% against an expected figure of 4% and just 2.9% in the fourth quarter of 2022. And so it really did look as though the reopening trade was on. Citigroup's economic surprise index for China had recovered from minus 78 in January to plus 162 by mid-April. But you're certainly correct to observe what's happened since then, and uh, that index has dropped back to just plus 24 now. The latest monthly data for April for retail sales, industrial production and fixed asset investment all undershot expectations, although to be fair, retail sales were still 18.4% up from a year earlier. I think it's really about the type of growth. And here, I believe there are some major misconceptions amongst investors about the nature of the recovery. Historically, China's recoveries have been largely driven by debt-fueled investment, either in infrastructure assets or real estate. And some people reach for that playbook once again. Hence, for example, there was a 55% rally for iron ore futures from last October's trough up until the March peak. But the need for massive new infrastructure is not what it used to be. And it's also been harder for local authorities to provide funds this time around. Then there's real estate, where the bubble that claimed Evergrande as its highest profile casualty is still in the process of a controlled deflation. And to boot, President Xi now wants Chinese citizens to think of their houses as places to live in and not as gaming chips. This is very much then what you might have not call a traditional Chinese recovery. And some people have been wrong-footed. We should also point out that China citizens did not benefit from massive government handouts during the pandemic, and so have less by way of excess savings to splurge. But having said that, it's not all sackcloth and ashes. Demand for luxury goods has been phenomenal, and that's been seen in no place more than in France, where the 40% weight of companies exposed to that industry has contributed to the CAC 40 index being one of the best performing indices this year. And of course, Bernard Arnault, the founder of LVMH, is now the world's wealthiest individual because of that. John, having said that, though, surely there are negative repercussions when it comes to global growth prospects. 
at the margin, uh, probably not as much as you might think, although certainly negative for choice. The idea that China bails out the world as it did in 2008 is no longer the case. The fact that Europe has avoided a recession, at least for now, thanks to weaker energy prices, is probably just as important. And also the resilience of the US economy is a strong counterweight for the time being. It's probably more about the mix of growth. And if there's more demand for services rather than goods and commodities, then certain countries, especially in the emerging markets complex, will have different experiences. More positively, though, the weaker than hoped for recovery is depressing certain commodity prices. And that does help global inflation and therefore increases the argument that we've largely seen the peak in global inflation and interest rates. And at the end of the day, it's the price of money that will be the key driver of financial assets. Well, let's look at that. The local currency weakening, if I'm not mistaken, to a five-month low. So there surely has been a knock-on effect on other major currencies, and particularly the US dollar. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one, I think. I mean, foreign exchange markets are notoriously difficult to trade profitably, especially one like this one, which is so subject to exchange controls and government intervention. I think the weakness of the yuan largely reflects the disappointment we've spoken of and a reversal of that over-optimism that developed through the end of 2022 and into early 2023. But the margin as well, there must be some reluctance to hold yuan assets in the light of the geopolitical risks. And I think it's certainly far too premature to be starting to tout the yuan as the world's new reserve currency. But I, I hate to say it though, but the yuan looks remarkably healthy against the rand. All right, John, thank you very much indeed. Quentin, let me bring you into the conversation for an emerging markets perspective. So China's slow recovery, what then is the impact on developing countries? Hi, Jeremy. Yes, indeed. I mean, obviously, China is hugely significant to the global economy at around 18% of global GDP. In the emerging market space, countries are impacted to varying degrees depending on how much they're actually exporting to China. And there is quite a different array across the different countries. If you look at Mongolia, for instance, 50% of their exports go to China. Taiwan is about 33%. Here in South Africa, we're somewhere between 10 and 15%. Our neighbors, Namibia, are 20%. So that really does differentiate in terms of how we are impacted, but certainly there will be an impact felt in South Africa, for sure. In terms of the other factors often overlooked, in terms of tourism, outbound tourism out of China is obviously being severely impacted. So some of these emerging economies that are tourism dependent are obviously seeing dramatic falls in tourist numbers coming into the country, which is a knock-on effect as well of this uh, slow Chinese economy. At the centre of this debate, surely, though, is commodity prices. There's been a less than stellar recovery in China. It obviously brings it home to South Africa, doesn't it? What impact on, on, on our commodities? Sure. Absolutely right, Jeremy. So the commodity prices, broadly speaking, in dollar terms are substantially lower. I mean, if you look at some of our key exports, coal prices down 55% year on year. Rhodium, which uh, experienced a price spike last year, traded as high as $30,000 an ounce. Now we're trading it at $7,000. So that's a substantial decline. It's not all negative, however. You know, if you look at our energy consumption, diesel prices, our basic fuel price component in our fuel calculation, it's down 42% since the peak in October last year. So at least there's going to be some, hopefully some relief there for consumers. The other bright spots, platinum, platinum's up 12%, largely on the back of our load shedding situation. You know, South Africa produces 70% of the world's platinum supply, the other 30% coming from Russia. So there obviously is some serious supply concerns in that sector. Gold prices also performing quite nicely, up 8% year on year on the back of the Ukraine crisis, and it's 
you know, obviously its benefit as an inflation hedging asset. Broadly speaking, South Africa is not in the worst place. If you look at our mining production data that was released last week, we're down 2.6% year on year, which is not tragic considering our load shedding situation. And if you look at the granular detail, we are actually up 5.6% between Feb and March. So at least the guys are still producing and it's actually quite a good story in terms of our mining production output and their resilience. Quentin, more broadly, just give me a quick perspective on trade relations if you can. Both of you have alluded to global growth worries. On previous podcasts, we've spoken about mild recession expectation, certainly gaining momentum in major economies. So in terms of trade relations globally, where is your head right now? Jeremy, I I think we ultimately need to control what we can in the space. And I think we've made some missteps in recent weeks on the back of this. Obviously, our relationship between ourselves and US is under severe pressure, probably the lowest it's been in history on the back of us supplying or being uh, implicated in the supply of arms to Russia. You know, and it, and it potentially could jeopardize our AGO agreement. If you if you look at AGO, it's basically 25% of our exports to the US, totaling around 65 billion rand a year. And essentially what it is, it's a freebie for South Africa. We deliver into the US market where we not charge any import duties. And if you actually look at the products that we are exporting, they are finished goods. You know, it's not raw materials. If you look at that AGO basket at this stage, 50% of it is vehicles. The other stuff is aluminium, ferro alloys, fruits and, and wine. And so the thinking is that by exporting into the US market, you're getting that manufacturing benefit, you, you're creating jobs. Whereas some of our other trade counterparts like China, for instance, you know, a lot of the materials we're exporting is, is raw material. So, you know, you don't get that ancillary benefits in terms of job creation in South Africa. You certainly can't underestimate that intersection between political policy and, uh, and trade. We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. As always, I'd just like to remind you that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Please don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please take a moment to rate us. So, John, let me return to you. Let's continue the conversation with monetary policy. Central banks worldwide at pains to rein in stubborn inflation. Obviously, this has driven down consumer demand. Bad news for the world's second largest consumer market. So with interest rates, John, unlikely to reduce any time soon, what then is the impact on China? Well, China has been attempting for some years to pivot away from its sort of pilot high and sell it cheap export-driven economy to one which offers more value-added goods and services. Uh, Indeed, I think that's one reason why the US is trying to restrain its progress. It just sees it as too large a threat to its own economic well-being. At the same time, the Chinese government has been trying to encourage greater domestic consumption as a driver of growth, with mixed success so far, especially without the feel-good tailwind of rising asset prices. But, you know, in that respect, I don't think China is quite as vulnerable, perhaps, as it might have been in the past uh, to a slower global environment. And certainly, though, we would all benefit from lower rates when they become appropriate. Is there any specific policy stimulus, John, that China should be focusing on right now? Um, As my previous answers have alluded to, the key has to be more sustainable growth, not another debt-fueled binge. The marginal contribution to growth from incremental levels of debt has been falling for years, a phenomenon, I should add, that's not peculiar to China. Most of the mature developed economies have a similar problem. So investment in productive capital and technology has to be the priority with more social safety nets for citizens to allow them to increase consumption. And there's also youth employment uh, that recently rose to more than 20% in the large cities and that needs to be addressed if there's not to be social unrest. And talking about safety nets, um, there are 
tensions, simmering tensions between the US and China. How does this impact the rest of the world, John? Do we need to start planning for the worst case scenario? Do we need to look for our own safety nets? Well, I think, you know, we might have to define worst case scenario first. If we're talking about a trade war, then that would certainly be preferable to an outright invasion of Taiwan, which I think is probably what you're alluding to. The latter is one of those tail risks that we believe is a low probability event, but it would have a huge impact should it occur. It certainly is a reason to continue to hold uh, US treasuries and gold as tail risk hedges in a multi-asset portfolio. But certainly, you know, making that a central case for asset allocation looks a bit too punchy for us at the moment. So, Quentin, I'll put the last question to you then. So there is general consensus that the global economy is looking shaky here in South Africa. Commodities, as we've discussed, critical to our growth. So what sort of outlook do you have for the rest of the year? What, what are you looking out for specifically? Jeremy, we, we I actually personally like to look at the oil market as a good barometer in terms of commodity demand. If you think of oil and energy products, they're an input into the production of other commodities. And we've actually seen in the oil market the first drawdown uh, this month in the last 11 months, which is quite encouraging in terms of oil prices basing here. We're seeing Russian production actually following OPEC guidelines, which is a new development. And we've had some of the supply out of North America impacted by the Canadian fires. So generally speaking, oil looks like it's stabilizing here. Chinese growth, as mentioned earlier, extremely weak at this stage. Our order books are are very, very light. Housing and infrastructure, commodity demand is particularly weak, as John mentioned earlier. And the stimulus needs to start to come through. I mean, we're not seeing the effect of stimulus that we were hoping. But saying that China is weak, obviously, the, the encouraging development is what's happening in India. We are starting to see some commodity buying coming up there and picking up the slack. U.S. and Europe, uh, European demand is extremely strong at this stage, considering the high interest rate environment we're in. And generally speaking, longer term for commodities, I think we're in a quite a good space in the commodity sector because capex is very, very difficult to come by and very, very expensive, largely on the back of ESG concerns. If you look at the West at this stage, since well, since 1976, we haven't built a single refiner, oil refinery of substantial size. There was one built in 2020 in North Dakota, but the last big refinery was, as I said, 1976. So short term, I think we're in a, in a bit of a messy situation, and there is obviously the overhang of this recession expected in Q4, Q1. It is expected to be a mild recession. However, I do believe that the longer term prospects are good for commodities and therefore South Africa in the space. John, just a quick one to you then. So if oil is clouding uh, Quentin's crystal ball, what's in your crystal ball for the rest of the year? There's a lot, lots of clouds on the horizon, not least the uh, the one that's right in front of us at the moment, which is uh, the negotiations over the US debt ceiling. Um, I think we've, you know, we have to get past that first. We will get past it. I think we're all sure of that. The only question is, is whether or not there's some kind of market tantrum which uh, has to happen first to force the negotiators in Congress to uh, come to an agreement. Once we're past that, though, it really is just continuing, you know, the effects and the, the long and lagged effects that people always talk about about monetary policy that we've seen. You know, the fact that rates have gone up so much in the last year. This is not a typical. But I say typical economic cycle. It's not like the last two big ones we've seen. It's not like COVID. It's not like the financial crisis. It's not that we've seen a big deflationary shock. This is a an inflationary cycle, which is you know where central banks have had to lean into it with tighter monetary policy, and it's just taking longer to play out. And we want to be more certain that we've seen the lows in the earnings cycle and in the economic cycle before we become a little bit more positive overall on risk assets. But we're we're not kind of super gloomy or anything like that. In London, that's the voice of John Wynne Evans, Head of Strategy at Investec Wealth and Investment UK. And here in Johannesburg, Quentin Allison, Investec Head of Commodities and Trade in South Africa. Thank you for joining me on this episode of No Ordinary Wednesday. 
Please join us again in a fortnight as we continue to explore money trends shaping your world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.